Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. In early September, three parties of six people total stopped at a derelict vehicle in the wilderness. Inside the vehicle was the decomposing body of a 24-year-old man. This is a look at that man, Christopher McCandless. Information for this episode has been taken primarily from the book Into the Wild by John Krakow, as well as an article in the Anchorage Daily News written by Craig Madrid, which does a lot to temper the more exaggerated parts of the book. The outer range runs east-west across 8 kilometers as a series of smaller ridges that make up the Alaska Range. At the bottom of the outer range is the Stampede Trail. Forged in the 1930s by an Alaskan miner named Earl Pilgrim, who claimed stake on Stampede Creek. In 1961, a Fairbanks company, Utan Construction, upgraded the trail, implementing roads so trucks could haul ore from the mine. Utan brought three junker buses and outfitted them with bunks and barrel stoves. In 1963, the project was pulled. 80 kilometers of road had been laid, but no bridges had been built. Two of these buses had been towed out, but the third had been left halfway out the trail to serve sort of as a shelter for hunters and trappers. 30 years since the company had abandoned the trail, it had fallen into disrepair. Nature reclaimed the roads by ways of washouts and seasonal floods, but the bus remained. It had broken windows and the engine was gone. For the most part, it wasn't unusual for the bus to be without visitors for large chunks of time, say six or so months. But as soon as moose season started, there would be a steady flow of hunters at least paying a visit to the bus. Three of the aforementioned visitors on September 6th, 1992, Ken Thompson, Gordon Samuel, and Ferdy Swanson, were stalking moose, 16 clicks past the end of the ruined road of the Stampede Trail. Torrents of white water that made up the river deterred most from continuing further. These men, however, were familiar with the area and searched the banks for a relatively shallow channel that they could steer into. The three made a cross without incident and hit the trail 100 metres up with some dynamite to clear out some beaver ponds. It was late afternoon by the time that they reached the bus, where they found a guy and a girl from Anchorage standing roughly 15 metres away, looking, quote, spooked. Neither of them had been inside the bus, but they were close enough to notice, quote, a real bad smell from inside. Outside, near the back exit of the bus, was a makeshift flag out of some red leg warmers. Stuck to the open door was a handwritten note which read, S.O.S. I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you, Chris McCandless. August, question mark. The couple didn't like the sound of the notes, and so they didn't go inside. That fell to Samuel. He first looked through the window. Inside was a Remington rifle, a box of shells, nine paperback books, some jeans, cooking utensils, 
and an expensive backpack. Towards the back of the bus was a blue sleeping bag that looked like it had something in it. Samuel reached through the back window and gave the bag a shake. There was something in it, but it wasn't really heavy. He walked around for a better look, and he saw a head and knew for certain that it was a body in the sleeping bag. They all agreed to contact the authorities, at which point a hunter from Healy named Butch Killian joined the group. Samuel suggested getting the remains out, but Killian vetoed that and told them that it should be left for the state Alaska troopers. In addition to being a hunter, Killian also worked as an emergency tech for the Healy Volunteer Fire Department, so he had a two-way in his truck. Not able to hail anyone, he drove back towards the highway. Eight clicks down the trail, he made contact with the power plant. Dispatch, he said, this is Butch. You better call the troopers. There's a man back in the bus by the Shushana. Looks like he's been dead for a while. A police helicopter was out there 8.30 the next morning. Troopers checked for any foul play before taking off. They took McCandless's remains, a camera with five rolls of exposed film, and the SOS note, as well as a diary that recorded his final weeks. An autopsy was performed on the body. It was pretty badly decomposed, so bad that it was pretty impossible to determine the cause of death. There was definitely no foul play, as there was no broken bones, no internal injuries, nothing of that sort. The muscles had withered significantly in the weeks prior to death, so ultimately it was determined that starvation was the cause of death. On February 12, 1968, Billy McCandless gave birth to Chris. Billy was married to Walt McCandless, once divorced, which will come into play in the near future. In the third grade, after getting a high grade in an achievement test, Chris was placed in an accelerated program for gifted students, much to the ire of Chris. To him, it was more homework, and he spent his time trying to get out of it. According to his sister, Corrine, he kept to himself. It wasn't like he was any social, he always had friends and everyone seemed to have liked him, but he would often go off on his own and entertain himself for hours. He could, quote, be alone without being lonely. Through his early life, his parents worked a lot. They ran a business together and eventually started making bank. Tension came from work often would result in verbal arguments, and Corrine notes that this is why she and Chris were so close to each other. Despite this, they still managed to carve out time for the family. Outside of school, they would take trips, camping out the back of a truck. Chris enjoyed these trips. The longer they were, the more he liked them. The family at one point traveled to Iron Mountain in Michigan, in the forests of the Upper Peninsula. When Chris was eight, Walt took him on his first overnight trip backpacking. The hike was three days up Old Rag in Madison County, Virginia. It became a father-son tradition, and they climbed Old Rag nearly every year after that point. A little older now, Chris climbed Long Peaks with his family. It was the highest summit in Rocky Mountain National Park, standing 4.3 kilometers tall. Of the two families, for Walt had invited the children from his first marriage, three of them, including Chris, made it to the 3.9k mark at a point called the Keyhole, and Walt decided to turn around. Chris whinged and whined, saying that he wanted to keep on going to the top. 
Walt says that if Chris had been a teenager, he probably simply would have gone without them. Hiking and climbing wasn't the only thing Chris had a natural talent for. But any effort made by family, friends, or teachers to further his skills hit a wall. Nuance, strategy, and anything beyond the basics were wasted on Chris. As far as he was concerned, the only way to meet a challenge was head-on and use brute force to get through the problem. It would be in high school when he found his passion for running track. Chris also developed a soft spot for the homeless and hungry, and would often rant about these injustices. One occasion has Chris picking up a homeless man on the streets of DC, bringing him home and setting him up in the caravan park next to his parents' house. Waltz and Billy never knew anything about the man. Chris would take trips to the bad parts of town with bags of hamburgers and hand them out to people sleeping on grates. In 1986, Chris graduated from Woodson High School. On Walt's birthday, he gave him an expensive telescope as a gift. Corrine recounts the night that he presented the gift. Quote, Chris had tossed back a few drinks that night and was pretty blitzed. He got real emotional. He was almost crying, fighting back tears, telling Dad that even though that they had, had their differences, he was grateful for all the things Dad had done for him. Chris's friends got the impression that his parents were nice, no different from anyone else's parents. It seemed like Chris just didn't like being told what to do. After graduation, Chris took off cross-country on a trip. He drove south and west across the flat Texas plains through New Mexico and Arizona and arrived at the Pacific coast. At first, he called his parents regularly, but that kind of just fell to the wayside. He came home two days after the fall term had started. He was scruffy, he had a wiry beard and long tangled hair. He had also lost 13 kilos. Turns out he had gotten lost in the Mojave Desert and nearly succumbed to dehydration. Walt tried to explain to Chris upon returning home that they didn't object to his travels they just wished that he would exercise more caution and keep them better informed of his whereabouts. Chris cleaned himself up for school, applied himself, and got good grades. He also started writing for the school newspaper. The summer after starting college, Chris got a job delivering pizzas and made some coin. He was meticulous in his accounting, keeping a record of wage tips and fuel money. Over this summer, Chris's relationship with his parents deteriorated. You see, Chris had been silently stewing for two years. Since the summer a couple of years before, he had driven to an old neighborhood his family had lived at when he was younger and talked to some old family friends. There, Chris began to piece together his father's previous marriage and the two years after Chris was born when he was caught cheating on Billy with his first wife. It was a messy time and probably the reason why the new family decided to move away. Chris never confronted his father about it. When classes ended in 1989, Chris took his shitty Datsun on another long road trip. The family only received two postcards over that summer, one that said, headed for Guatemala, and the other said, leaving Fairbanks tomorrow. This was Chris's first visit to the far north, he spent a little bit of time around Fairbanks and then went south to Atlanta. Senior year at Emory, a professor gave him a key for the library where he spent most of his free time. 
he seldom contacted his parents that year, though this was more because he had no phone nor easy access to one. Walt and Billy were understandably a little worried at his distance and wrote him a letter to which Chris disregarded it as meddling and stupid. Spring 1990 marked a turning point. With graduation, Chris was no longer forced to one place. He talked about going on another extended trip, but implied that he would visit his parents before going. Shortly after, he donated his entire bank account to Oxfam, loaded up his car, and just took off. In October 1993 or so months after Chris left Atlanta, a National Park Service ranger named Bud Walsh was out in the backcountry of Lake Mead National Recreation Area to tally bear paw poppies. With a team of rangers, they were checking the edge of a dry riverbed when they found a large object under a tarp. Pulling back the tarp, they found a yellow Datsun without license plates and a note taped to the back of the windshield that read, This piece of shit has been abandoned. Whoever can get it out of here can have it. The doors were unlocked and the car was filled with mud, thanks to the flash floods around the area. Inside was a saucepan with some loose change in it, a football, some old clothes, fishing rod, some tackle, an electric razor, harmonica, jumper cables, and a bag of rice. Rangers searched the area for anything suspicious. Finding nothing, they jump-started the car and drove it back at, quote, 60 miles an hour, the thing ran like a champ. They did a search on the car's serial number, but it came up cold after it was sold to a second-hand company that didn't really care to claim it. As you may have guessed, that was the Datsun that Chris was driving when he left for his trip. July 6th, he arrived in the area and steered the car off the road and drove down three clicks to the south shore of the lake. In that 48 degrees Celsius heat, he found a tree for shade and pitched his tent. Two days after that, a thunderstorm rolled in and began to rain heavily. Chris was camped at the edge of the wash, and the rains caused water to rush down. He had just enough time to pack his tent, gather his belongings, and get out of there. The flash flood didn't wash away the vehicle, but the engine did get wet, which, if I recall my mechanics correctly, is bad. Chris tried to get it started multiple times, enough to drain the battery. With the dead battery, there was no way for Chris to get the car running. Having no choice, he prepared himself to walk. He briefly tossed up informing authorities once he got to town, but the car was uninsured and his license was expired. Instead, he did the more sensible thing. He stripped the car of its plates and buried them along with his rifle and some other possessions that he might want to recover in the future. Before leaving the area, he took all his paper currency, 120 American dollars, and put a match to it. Chris got the remainder of his stuff and set out to hike Lake Mead. According to his journal, he underestimated the summer heat and suffered from heat stroke. He managed to flag down some boaters who gave him a lift to Colville Bay, and from there he took the road. Chris head west from there for the next two months, hiking to Sierra Nevada, and spent a week living north on the Pacific Crest Trail. Near the end of July, he got a job in a ranch in Northern California. He worked on the ranch for 11 days with six other men, but the owner scabbed out on paying them, so Chris stole a push bike and rode to town, 
where he ditched the bike in a parking lot. As he made his way north and west, he was picked up by a pair of drifters in a van, Jan Barras and her boyfriend Bob. Quote, he had a book of plants with him and he was using it to pick up berries, collecting them in a gallon milk jug with the top cut off. He looked so pitiful, so I yelled, hey, you want to ride somewhere? I thought maybe we could give him a meal or something. Chris McCandless, at this point, had been going by the name of Alex Supertramp. Chris liked these guys and would keep in touch with them quite often throughout his travels. After parting with them, Chris travelled north up through the coast, through Bristol River, Coos Bay, Port Angeles, Port Townsend, just to name a few places. On August 10, Chris got a ticket for hitchhiking near Willow Creek. Chris gave his address as his parents' address back home, since the arresting officer demanded his permanent residence. Walt and Billy got the ticket in the mail near the end of August. They would go on to hire a PI who really only found the car by way of law enforcement fighting it. He was a really useless PI. They were concerned for him since he had ditched the Datsun and he apparently loved that car. In truth, it wasn't about the car itself. His parents, it was a, it was a little falling out that they had. His parents tried to give him a new car as a graduation gift and Chris protested saying that he had a perfectly fine car. It wasn't that he really loved the Datsun, it was that he had a functional car and probably felt that a new one was a colossal waste of resources. By the end of summer, he was in the town of Carthage and working for a man named Wayne Westerberg. This lasted until Westerberg was jailed, then Chris made for warmer climates. October 28, he caught a ride with a long hauler into Needles, California. He left the highway and started walking south through the desert, following the riverbank. About 20 kilometers on foot, he made it to a town called Tappic in Arizona. In town, he fancied him a second-hand aluminium canoe. He bought it and immediately used it to paddle down the Colorado River to the Gulf of California, about 650 kilometers south of where he was, crossing the Mexican border. He stopped at the town of Yuma to restock provisions before crossing the border. He also sent a postcard to Wayne Westerberg. It read, quote, How's it going? I hope your situation has improved since the last time we spoke. I was traveling around Arizona for about a month now. This is a good state. There is all kinds of fantastic scenery and the climate is wonderful. But apart from sending greetings, the main purpose of this card is to thank you once again for all your hospitality. It is rare to find a man as generous and as good-natured as you are. Sometimes I wish I hadn't met you, though. Tramping is too easy with all this money. My days were more exciting when I was penniless and had to forage around for my next meal. I couldn't make it now without money, however, as there is very little fruiting agriculture down here this time. Please thank Kevin again for all the clothes he gave me. I would have froze to death without them. I hope he got that book to you. Wayne, you really should read War and Peace. I meant it when I said you had one of the highest characters of any man I'd met. That is a very powerful and highly symbolic book. It has things in it I think you would understand. Things that escape most people. 
As for me, I've decided I'm going to live my life for some time to come. The freedom and simple beauty of it is just too good to pass up. One day I'll get back to you, Wayne, and repay some of your kindness. A case of Jack Daniels, maybe? Till then, I'll always think of you as a friend. God bless you, Alexander. On December 2nd, he reached Morelos Dam, and with that, the Mexican border. He carried no ID, so he snuck into Mexico by paddling through the dam's open floodgates. He prepared himself to be caught, but no one either saw him or cared. After the dam, there was a web of canals, marshland, and dead-end channels across the countryside. Chris repeatedly lost his way. One instance where he hit a dead end, it took him three days to carry the canoe and his gear to a new canal. His journal entry for the 5th of December reads, Quote, At last, Alex finds what he believes to be the Weltico Canal, and heads south. Worries and fears return as the canal grows ever smaller. Local inhabitants help him portage around a barrier. Alex finds Mexicans to be warm, friendly people, much more hospitable than Americans. It's probably important to note at this point that these journal entries are written like that in the third person in a very novel sort of way, quite possibly influenced by Chris's love of survival books like Call of the Wild. Journal entry for the 6th of December, quote, small but dangerous waterfalls litter the canal. 9th of December, quote, all hopes collapse. The canal does not reach the ocean, but merely peters out into a vast swamp. Alex is utterly confounded, decides he must be close to ocean and elects to try and work way through the swamp to sea. Alex becomes progressively lost to the point where he must push canoe through reeds and drag it through mud. All is in despair. Find some dry ground to camp in swamp at sundown. Next day on 12-10, Alex resumes quest for an opening to the sea, but only becomes more confused, travelling in circles. Completely demoralised and frustrated, he lays in his canoe at day's end and weeps. And then, by fantastic chance, he comes upon Mexican duck hunting guides who can speak English. He tells them his story and his quest for the sea. They say there is no outlet to the sea. But then one among them agrees to tow Alex back to his base camp and drive him and the canoe to the ocean. It is a miracle. His journal entries become short after this. On the 14th of December, Chris hauls the canoe up the beach to a plateau and stays there for 10 days. Strong winds forced him into a cave that was located halfway up a bluff. He stayed there for another 10 days, then he kept paddling down the shoreline. A very fateful day is the journal entry for the 11th of January 1991. He beached on a sandbar. The journal continues, quote, He screams and beats his canoe oar. The oar breaks. Alex has one spare oar. He calms himself. If loser's second oar is dead. Finally, through extreme effort and much cursing, he manages to beach canoe on jetty and collapses exhausted on sand at sundown. This incident led Alexander to decide to abandon canoe and head north. 
It was 16th of January when he left the boat and started walking north up the beach. It had been 36 days since he had talked to another living person. This time he lived on just a couple of kilos of rice and whatever marine life he could rip from the sea. Now he was caught by United States immigration authorities trying to slip through without an ID and he did spend a night in the slammer before ultimately being let go minus a handgun that he had acquired at some point. The next six weeks were sporadic. He went as far east as Houston, as far west as the Pacific coast, and on the 6th of February, he went to LA to get some ID and get a job. He noted in his journal that he feels, quote, extremely uncomfortable in society now and must return to the road immediately. Mid-February, he was in the Grand Canyon, and on the 24th, he returned to the area he left the Datsun. The car was obviously gone, but the things he buried were still there. He took them and hitched to Vegas, where he got a job at a restaurant. His camera broke, and he had stopped writing in his journal, picking back up only on his way to Alaska. So there's not a whole lot that's known after he left Vegas. From a letter he sent Jan and Bob, he spent July and August on the Oregon coast. By early October, he was in Bullhead City, Arizona. For what seemed like the first time since Atlanta, Chris stopped. He was at Bullhead City for two whole months. He wrote to Westerberg again saying that it was a good place to spend the winter and that he might finally settle down and abandon his tramping life for good. He held down a full-time job at Macca's, commuting to work on a bike. Interestingly, during his stay here, he used his real name, not the Alex handle, and he even gave out his social security number to be able to work. The PI that Walt and Billy hired never seemed to have caught this. His colleagues don't really remember him much, one assistant manager recalled one thing that stuck with him though. Chris had a thing for socks. The assistant manager recounts, quote, He always wore shoes without socks, just plain couldn't stand to wear socks. But McDonald's had a rule that employees have to wear appropriate footwear at all times. That means shoes and socks. Chris would comply with the rule, but as soon as his shift was over, bang, First thing he'd do was peel off those socks. And I mean the very first thing. Kind of like a statement to let us know that we didn't own him, I guess. But he was a nice kid and a good worker. The second assistant manager, however, said the contrary. Quote, he could do the job, but he always worked at the same slow pace, even during the lunch rush, no matter how much we try to get him to hurry it up. Customers would be stacked 10 deep at the counter, and he wouldn't understand why I was on his case. He just didn't make the connection. It was like he was off in his own universe. When he talked, he always talked about trees and nature and weird stuff like that. We all thought he had a few screws loose. She then goes on further to say, quote, When Chris quit, it was probably because of me. When he first started working, he was homeless, and he'd show up for work smelling bad. It wasn't up to McDonald's standards to come in smelling the way he did, so finally they delegated me to tell him that he needed to take a bath more often. Ever since I told him, there was a clash between us. And then the other employees, they were just trying to be nice. 
they started asking if he needed some soap or anything. That made him mad, you could tell. But he never showed it outright. About three weeks later, he just walked out the door and quit. Chris told his fellow employees that he lived across the river, when in reality he was squatting in a vacant mobile home. He sent a letter to Jan and Bob to let them know where he was and what he was up to. Jan immediately wrote back. They could see him in Bullhead the next week since they were planning on passing nearby. Chris wrote back on the 9th of December saying that he would be delighted and they were welcome anytime. He closed the letter with directions to the trailer that he was staying at. But they wouldn't have to travel. Chris met them at their return address, a place called the Slabs by the locals, four days after they received Chris's last letter. Chris helped Jan and Bob at the large swap meet that was taking place, overseeing the inventory of used paperback books. Now, Bob thought himself somewhat of a survivalist, and Chris talked to him at length. Every morning, he would do calisthenics to get in shape preparing specifically for a hike into the wilderness. He would talk at length excitedly about his planned Alaskan odyssey. Jan, being worried about him, asked if his family knew, but Chris would never answer. Just roll his eyes and tell her to quit mothering him. Bob encouraged him, telling her to leave him alone and that he was a grown man who could make his own choices. When Chris told them he would be leaving, Jan tried to give him money for helping out at the stalls. Chris rejected the money but relented to a Swiss army knife and some belt knives. After some arguing, Jan got Chris to accept some long underwear and extra clothes, but before he departed, he left the clothes with them. Ronald Franz was 80 years old when he met Chris in January 1992. Chris had been camping just off a lake shore under a tarp that hung from a tree. He would go into town, six clicks worth of walking and hitching, to buy rice and fill his plastic jug with water at the town's little uh, one-stop shop. One afternoon in mid-January, Chris was walking back to his camping site when Ron Franz stopped to give him a ride. He drove Chris the rest of the way and talked with him for a little bit before returning to town where he lived alone. Franz had lost his wife and son in a two-car accident and had hit the liquor hard to cope. He sobered up after six months, but the pain of losing his family never left. I'm guessing that's probably what led to his soft spot for Chris. He called on him at the camp the next day and started a motivational uh, speech to Chris to try and get him to improve his life. Chris stopped him and told the old man that he didn't need to worry. Quote, I have a college education. I am not destitute. I am living like this by choice. Over the next few weeks, Franz taught Chris his trade, leatherwork. Chris made for himself a belt with Alex inscribed on one end, the initials CJM, that is his real initials, frame a skull and crossbones, and across the belt is carved Chris's journeys up till that point. Early February, Chris would split for San Diego to earn some more money for his trip to Alaska. Franz tried to persuade him that there was plenty of work around here, he didn't need to go. 
Chris would then receive a letter from Wayne Westerberg informing him that he was out of prison and that there would be a job waiting for him in Carthage. Franz offered to take Chris to Grand Junction, Colorado. Before he left, Franz gifted Chris a machete, an Arctic parka, a collapsible fishing pole, and some other assorted gear that would serve him well in Alaska. Chris then hitchhiked to Carthage and worked, once again, with Westerberg. Chris told Westerberg that he would only be staying until April 5th, just long enough to buy new gear. He promised to come back to South Dakota in time to help with the autumn harvest, but he had to be out in April to spend as much time as possible up north. Westerberg notes, while he was a hard worker, he had trouble with machinery. Quote, he wasn't what you would call mechanically minded. He continues, Alex wasn't a total space cadet or anything, don't get me wrong, but there were gaps in his thinking. I remember once I went over to the house, walked into the kitchen, and noticed a god-awful stink. I mean, it smelt nasty in there. I opened the microwave, and the bottom of it was filled with rancid grease. Alex had been using it to cook chicken, and it never occurred to him that the grease had to drain somewhere. It wasn't that he was too lazy to clean it up, Alex always kept things real neat and orderly, it was just that he hadn't noticed the grease. When Westerberg had him over for dinner, his wife said that he was a big eater and a good cook, and he once boasted about how he had lived a month on nothing but 25 pounds of rice. Westerberg would later note, quote, I got the impression that this Alaska escapade was going to be his last big adventure, and that he wanted to settle down some. He said he was going to write a book about his travels. He likes Carthage. He definitely intended to come back here for a while, figure out what he was going to do next. Come mid-April, Westerberg was short on helpers and quite busy. He requested Chris put his trip on hold for a week or two, but Chris wouldn't even consider it. Westerberg offered to buy Chris a plane ticket to Fairbanks, which would let him work an extra 10 days and still get to Alaska by the end of April. Flying would be cheating, it would wreck the whole trip, was Chris's reply. April 15th, he set off. Tucked into his boot was about a grand's worth of cash. He left his journal and photo album with Westerberg for safekeeping and gave him the leather belt he had handcrafted. One of the fellow employees agreed to drive Chris to Interstate 94 along the way to a delivery. On the same day, he sent a card to Jan and Bob that read, quote, Hey guys, this is the last communication you shall receive from me. I will now walk out to live amongst the wild. Take care. It was great knowing you. April 15, 1992, Chris was in the cab of a truck on his way to Fairbanks. Having met the driver at the thermal hot springs of Liard River, the driver was unwilling to take Chris more than a stop over, worried about the company that he worked for and the policies concerning hitchhikers. But a day after driving with Chris, he decided to continue the ride. He enjoyed Chris's company. It was April 25th when they arrived in Fairbanks. 
At the stop, Chris bought a bag of rice and said that he was going to the university to see what kind of plants he could eat. The driver told him that it was too early for plants to be out. There was still two feet of snow on the ground. A delay caused the driver to seek out Chris, wondering how he was getting along, but he was already gone. But Chris hadn't left town. He slept the next couple of days, hovering around. Here he brought a used 22 Remington, the style Alaskan trappers frequently use, and he also purchased a 100-round box of hollow-point long rifle shells from the town's gun shop. The early morning of 28th of April, he took to the road. Jim Galleon picked up the young hitchhiker just six clicks out of Fairbanks. The rifle was sticking out of his backpack, but that wasn't an unusual sight on the highway there. Chris introduced himself as Alex and said he wanted a ride as far as the edge of the Denali National Park, where he intended to walk straight into the bush and live off the land for a few months. Galleon told him he was going to Anchorage on the George Parks Highway and that he would drop him off at any point he wanted. Galleon was an accomplished hunter and woodsman and commented on how small and light Chris's backpack looked. Too light for a several months stay in the woods, even living off the land. The more they talked, the less it seemed Chris had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. He talked about the type of small game, asked what kind of berries he should look out for, and what he should be weary of. All that was in the backpack for food was a 10 pound bag of rice, 4.5 kilos for normal measurements for normal people. His leather boots were cheap and not weatherproof. His rifle was only 22 caliber, not large enough to kill big animals like moose. He had no axe, no bug spray, no snowshoes, and no compass. His map was a shitty road map that had no markers that would be of any benefit to someone hiking in the wild. Speaking of the map, he pointed to the dashes that represented the Stampede Trail and told Galleon that that's where he was going to go. Galleon was worried since even with his knowledge, he wouldn't go so underprepared. He tried to persuade Chris not to go at all. Quote, I said the hunting wasn't easy where he was going, that he could go for days without killing any game. When that didn't work, I tried to scare him with bear stories. I told him that a 22 probably wouldn't do anything to a grizzly except make him mad. Alex didn't seem too worried. He had an answer for everything that I threw at him. Galleon then offered to drive him to Anchorage and get some decent gear, then drive him back to where he wanted to go. Chris declined, saying that he would be fine with what he had. They drove a few clicks into the Stampede Trail before Galleon refused to go further, lest his truck get stuck in the snowy mush. Chris insisted on giving Galleon his watch, comb, and all of his money, a whole 85 cents in loose change. When Galleon declined, Chris told him that if he didn't take it, he would only be throwing them away. Galleon then pulled out some rubber boots and gave them to Chris, and gave him a slip of paper with his phone number on it. He told him to call him, and he'll tell him how to get the boots back. This wasn't all the generosity Galleon bestowed. His wife had packed two grilled cheese and tuna sandwiches. One he gave to Chris, along with a bag of chips. Chris got Galleon to snap a shot of him walking down the trail with his rifle on his shoulder. Content, he started down the trail. It was April 28th, 1992. The temperature was minus one degree Celsius. By the time Chris headed into the bush, 
The open water was flowing through the large streams. Not a single person had been down the track in at least a couple of weeks, and there was little more than a snow machine track for him to follow. Second day, he reached the Teklanica River. There weren't any ice bridges for him to cross, so he was forced to wade. It was only thigh high at this point, and the current wasn't really strong. Inexperienced Chris didn't know that this water would multiply 10 times the volume and the river would become a vicious torrent in a couple of months. From his journal, now written on the pages of the Plant Field Guide, we know that 29th of April he fell through some ice, but it didn't seem to really harm him. Okay, now it's worth pointing out that the article mentioned in the intro from the Anchorage Daily News, which will be linked in the description, vetoes a lot about the book at this point. So I'll be pointing it out from here. Assume that unless I specifically point something out as being from that article, I'm taking the information from the book. Now this article says a lot about this section is completely fiction or at the very least misattributed writings and stretches of the imagination. One thing it mentions is this journal. See, the entries from here on are assumed to be daily accounts, numbered 1 to 113, while there's no indication of this. In fact, there's contradicting evidence based on meteorological data. To quote from the article, McCandless's photos show him crossing an iced-over Teklanica River with some open channels of water. At number 10 in his journal, he wrote, Snowed in. His photos show a cheap nylon tent buried under the snow. Weather records indicate 2.5 inches of snow in the area on May 8th and another 6 inches on May 9th. But there was also a later storm that brought 4.5 inches of new snow to Denali Park on May 16 and another 6.8 inches the next day. If that storm represents the snowed in day, it's possible that McCandless didn't start down the road until the late, as late as May 6th. Or the second storm could have come at number 14 when McCandless wrote the lone word misery for the day. Either way, it would seem that he was well into his journey before ice out on the Nanana River and thus, as Galian noted, there would be no swift water crossing the bridges over the highway. So, what else does Chris talk about in his journals? For certain, he had problems hunting game initially, shooting and missing ducks and killing one bird one day and later a single squirrel, prompting an entry that says, Fourth Day Famine. As the snow melted, exposing rose hips and lingonberries, these became staple for Chris's diet for the time being. He became successful at game hunting over the next six weeks and seemed to have eaten fairly regularly on squirrels, duck, geese, and porcupine. He explored the land, scaling a nearly kilometre-high butte north of the bus. After four days on the bus, he resumed plans to walk west. He headed off the trail, moving more north than west. He made poor time since a lot of his time had to be spent stalking animals, as the ground thawed, it became sludge that also made it very difficult to travel. It seems he reconsidered his plans. When he was just less than 25 kilometers away from the bus, he turned back. Maybe the choice to turn back to the bus was because it really couldn't be considered the wilderness. You see, 50 clicks east was a major highway, and 25 clicks south 
was the edge of a national park the tourists often frequented. Even closer still, within 10 kilometers, were three cabins, though they weren't occupied during this time, and there's more on those cabins later. During the last week of May, Chris wrote out a list of chores on some bark, which included collecting and storing ice from the river for refrigerating meat, covering the missing windows on the bus with plastic, getting firewood, cleaning the stove, and under the title Long Term, he had to map the area, make a bathtub, collect skins and feathers for clothing, make a bridge for the nearby creek, and blaze a network of hunting trails. The journal then goes back to cataloging the type of game that he caught. Lots of porcupines and squirrels. June 9, he exclaims that he bagged a moose. Now, there's some debate if it was actually a moose or a caribou. Now, I'll save you the trouble, and I looked it up already. It's apparently another name for a reindeer. The camp against say that Chris was inexperienced and there's no way that he could have killed a moose. He must have identified it. But there's entries later where he explicitly says that he tried to shoot a caribou and missed. So he definitely knew the two different animals and could tell them apart. But having said that, it was a very small moose. Despite this, it still gave him plenty of meat. Chris then spent the next six days trying to preserve all of that meat. Organs were made into a stew for immediate consumption, and he tried to cure the meat by smoking. While that is one perfectly fine way of doing it, hunters familiar with the area knew that it was easier to slice the meat into thin strips and air dry it on a rack. The next half a dozen entries document what he cut out and off, and what he did with it. June 14, maggots are ready. Smoking appears ineffective. Don't know, looks like disaster. I now wish I never shot the moose. It appears that Chris had a revelation. Writing a passage stating that he was reborn, the great holiness of food, the absolute truth and honesty. With that, he apparently learnt everything he wanted to in the last two months, and decided to return to civilization. He prepared to depart, patching his jeans, shaving, and taking a photo of himself. July 30 began to hike the 32km hike back to the road. Two days later, he reached the Teklanica River. The water was now chest deep, or deeper, three times its width, and the current was powerful enough to take him, even if he tried to cross it. In his journal, he said, Disaster reigned in. River looked impossible, lonely, and scared. He turned and walked back. John Krakauer believes he thought it would be best to come back at a later time to assess the situation in a couple of weeks when the river eventually dropped. So, here's where we hit a bit of a snag. As the ADN article points out, the journal never actually mentions what Chris was doing or thinking. The entry simply reads, Departed. Maybe a little artistic license with the stuff he wrote, but there was no clear indication that he was going back to civilization. In addition to this, the amount of water flowing seems to be an overstatement since Chris actually took the photo of the river and it wasn't flooded according to the photo. Either way, he was back at the bus and we do have a record of what he killed over what we presume is the next three weeks 
of July. More squirrels, this time some frogs. This was all that supplemented him, along with some wild potatoes, rhubarb, berries, and mushrooms. Not to give anything away, but keep these in mind. The meat was lean, and he was consuming fewer calories than he was burning. We'll get back to this as well. On July 30th, the entry for his journal reads, Extremely weak, fault of pot seed, much trouble just to stand up, starving, great jeopardy. August 5th says, Day 100, made it, but in weakest condition of life. Death looms as serious threat. Too weak to walk out, have literally become trapped in the wild. No game. No entries for August 6th to 8th. On the 9th, he notes that he shot at and missed a bear. August 10, he saw a caribou, but didn't shoot. He did manage to kill five squirrels, though. The 11th, he got a bird, and on the 12th, he foraged for berries. He wrote a note, that is the SOS note mentioned back at the beginning, before leaving. 13th through the 18th, there is nothing beyond tallies. On the back of a page of a paperback, he scrawled, I have had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless us all. And with that, Chris expired sometime after the 18th of August, at least 112 days after heading out into the wild, 19 days before the six hikers would find him. But this is not the end of it. We have some conflicting information, some trashed cabins, and some theories on what exactly caused Chris's death. Okay, first off, we have the book saying that Chris's health went to hell on the 30th, but then we have Chris up and hunting and foraging for another week after that. It doesn't seem like his health had deteriorated so badly that he was not able to get up and traveling, just that he was starving and he felt like he was in great jeopardy. Secondly, we have a park service cabin and two private cabins that the book insists that Chris had no idea about. These cabins were proper shelters, contained food and first aid supplies, and it was likely that someone would eventually be by and could help him. Alright, I'm going to quote the evidence that the article presents concerning this. His photos also showed he started down a snow machine packed trail before exploring the stampede country. In his days out of the bus, he likely followed a similarly packed trail to several cabins, at least one of which had food that might have helped him keep alive for months. Three cabins, two privately owned and one the property of the National Park Service, were broken into while McCandless was at the bus. It had never happened before. It has not happened since. In Into the Wild, Krakauer dismissed the break-ins, saying that if McCandless had done it, quote, it's difficult to imagine him destroying the buildings without boasting of the deed in his diary. The diary contains no boasting of anything. And Krakauer fails to mention the only trail in the area at the time led to the cabins. A man setting off to explore the country around the bus would inevitably follow the trail as McCandless clearly did on his way to the bus, because it makes hiking easier. Krakauer knew McCandless followed a snow machine trail to the bus that would have looked the same as the snow machine trail south to the cabins just before reaching the bus. 
Now, finally, some theories on what may exactly have caused his death. So one theory states that the pot seed that he blames in his journal points to a poisoning from eating wild potato seeds since he picked up a handful of them in town in an effort to maybe start a garden. While wild potato seeds can be poisonous in large quantities, Chris didn't have enough in his possession to hit that threshold. Related to this, wild sweet peas look similar to wild potatoes. The roots of the wild potato are alright to eat, and the wild sweet pea, not so much. There isn't much evidence beyond this, and the compendium that Chris had on wild plants had the wild sweet pea page one page over from the wild potato page, so I would assume that he would have seen it, read it, knowing the differences between the two. The book presents an alternative theory based on mold, specifically mold that creates an enzyme that is essential in glycoprotein metabolism. When sufficient amounts of this toxin are in your body, you're prevented from turning food into energy, you starve belly full. Normally, it wouldn't be too much of a problem for someone healthy, but Chris was skin and bone by the time he was eating this mold, or so it's thought, and his body didn't have any expendable molecules of glucose to flush the poison out. Sort of related to the mold theory is a theory that uh, he ate too much lean meat in the form of squirrels, and so suffered from something called protein poisoning. Now, I'm not a doctor, so sure, that's a possibility. The last theory comes from ADN, and it's probably the one that I'm more inclined to believe. Photos taken by Chris show mushrooms growing in the area. These mushrooms have been identified as ones that make people violently ill. Number 89 of the entries says, Many mushrooms dream. Dream being written in bold letters. Arrows connect dream to mushroom. If the numbered entries are days, it was five days before Chris talked about pot seed. Four entries following dream entry are completely gibberish. Sounds like this dude just ate some bad mushrooms. And with that, it includes the life and death and the theories thereof of Chris McCandless. I would highly recommend reading the book Into the Wild, since there's more extrapolation on Chris's family and motives, and a further breakdown of what possibly went on while he was on the Stampede trial. Then, once you've read that, read the article from ADN that is linked. Nice to balance everything out. Thank you for listening. This has been the Sext and Murder Podcast. <laughs>